Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to our podcast series that we label Faculty and Research. This week, our guest is Professor Malat Tadeza, Professor of Statistics and Chair of the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at Georgetown. She is an elected member of the International Statistical Institute and an elected fellow of the American Statistical Association. Her research centers around the development of statistical and computational tools for the analysis of large-scale genomic data. Her methodological work focuses on stochastic search methods and Bayesian inferential strategies to identify structures and relationships in high-dimensional data sets. We're going to explore what those words mean uh, while we're chatting. She's also involved in a number of multidisciplinary research projects for which she provides statistical expertise in, in study design and, and data analysis. Malette, we are overjoyed to be able to spend some time with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for this opportunity. So maybe we ought to begin on reflecting back on how you develop these interests in statistics and mathematical approaches at analyzing data, but also this theme that you have developed over the past years of biomedical applications to that, especially big data, genomic data applications. So this is an area I didn't know about growing up or even starting an undergraduate. So growing up in Ethiopia, my dream was to become a medical doctor. Starting 11th grade, my studies kind of focused into sciences, uh, but with this intention of going to medical school. And then I came to the US and then I realized the cost of medical school was exorbitant and I couldn't even consider doing it. So instead I majored in, I, debated between physics and mathematics and settled in majoring in mathematics in undergraduate. And I was just taking the regular courses, kind of thinking maybe I would go into teaching math. But at the end of my junior year, I got the opportunity to participate in a summer program in biostatistics. And this is really where I learned about statistics. This is really my first encounter with statistics. And I was really excited at seeing applications of statistics in biomedical sciences. So I felt like, okay, I cannot go to medical school, but this gets me closer to where I wanted to be. And at the same time, continue working with mathematical applications. So that was really like the big turning point for me. Another component was that internship program was that they gave us a lot of advice about graduate schools. So that completely demystified the graduate school application process. So when I returned in my senior year, I applied for graduate programs and I did it all in biostatistics. I was completely convinced this is what I was going to want to do. And that became my career essentially. Mm. And once I went to grad school, and in my first year of taking courses, I took a course in Bayesian statistics, and I really was drawn by this concept of combining existing knowledge with the data that you currently have on hand. And also the computational side of it was uh, very attractive. This was also a, a time where the Bayesian methods were becoming popular because there were enough advances in computing. And there was also this realization in the statistics community, at least, that Markov chain Monte Carlo methods were not just an exercise. You could actually use them in a wide variety of applications. So I just felt like instead of going into an area of statistics where things were very well established, this was 
kind of new. I felt like there's not going to be a lot to catch up with for me. And then I could write with the field progressing. And in terms of the genomic application, this was also um, a decision I took in my first year of graduate school. So once I went to grad school, I applied and I was awarded, uh, I was awarded a Howard Hughes Predoctoral Fellowship. And that gave me the flexibility to really explore different research topics. So among biomedical applications, genetics has always fascinated me. And this was also a time where uh, DNA microarrays were new technology. There was a lot of excitement about their potential and how they could revo revolutionize medical sciences with the ability to simultaneously really quantify thousands and sometimes millions of markers. So I thought, okay, I have the funding. I could choose whatever I want to work. So these are the Asian statistics part was very attractive and the genomic applications was also good. And so I felt like, so these are all both fairly new areas. Of course, there's a lot of established knowledge, but I felt like there was, was a nice area to get into and I found them both exciting. And the challenge with these genomic data sets is their high dimensionality is one problem. There's a lot of noise inherent to these technologies. So extracting the signal from the noise is a big problem. And there's also a complex correlation structure. So trying to exploit the information from that type of data is challenging. And so over the years, when I started out in grad school, DNA microarrays was about 10,000 probes where that was where the technology was. And over the years, the technologies have evolved. Now there are a lot of omic technologies from epigenomic to metagenomic, metabolomic. So there's a lot of omic technologies. And so things keep evolving. The core of the problems is the same, is to try to identify markers that can be used for therapeutic or diagnostic purposes, uh, but the dimensions of the data sets are also growing. So the complexity keeps growing. So there's still inter interesting questions that arise and also questions that maybe did not arise when I was a graduate student, like integrating these different type of technologies to try to better understand, get gain molecular insights into how DNA, RNA, protein, and phenotype, the whole uh, biological process work. I want to probe different features of your response, if, if we could. Your experience post-junior year, that junior year summer, and the Howard Hughes Fellowship, it sounds like those were externally funded events that were critical in Definitely. who you became. Uh, who funded the first one? Was that an NIH uh, summer fellowship? This was a summer program that Harvard ran, uh -huh. uh, and they still run it, actually. It's still run by Harvard, and it is through an NIH funding. And so I think when I did it, it was probably the fourth or fifth year, but it's still going on. And there are many students who get motivated after that to maybe not necessarily go into biostatistics, but really pursue graduate studies in biomedical sciences. Just a comment on that, knowing the development of the field of biostatistics, it is still a young field, right? Definitely. And it's a field where it is possible to go to many very, very good undergraduate institutions and not know that it really exists. So I could see how valuable that was. I also want to probe another thing. In a, in a way, it seems like your career is set around a, a bunch of transformational events. One, the the injection of Bayesian thinking into more and more applications, in your case, biomedical applications, is itself a, a revolution. I think, why don't we, just for our audience, give us a just a, a primer on the contrast between classical inferential statistics and Bayesian and why that was such a struggle 
for the field of statistics to resolve what to do. What we learn or what our students learn when they take their first statistics courses is what we call classical or frequent statistics. You use your current data and you draw inference to try to generalize from your data to a population. When I say, for instance, my distribution follows a normal or my data follows a normal distribution, and then I specify the mean and variance of that distribution, the mean and variance are supposed to be fixed population parameters that I need to learn, and I'm going to learn them from my data. In the Bayesian world, you have your data, so the same likelihood that you'd be using in a classical setting is, stays there, but your parameters now would have distributions, which we call prior distributions. And if you have knowledge, you would include your knowledge into specifying those prior distribution, and you'd be combining this prior knowledge or prior distribution with the current data that you have. And your inference is drawn by this combination where you calculate a posterior distribution. So, and that's the part that's attractive because when we decide to do a study, that's not the first ever study on that topic. There's a lot of knowledge that's already exists. And so the attractiveness of Bayesian methods is to say, okay, let me use existing historical data, existing knowledge, whether established or with some level of certainty, let me introduce that external knowledge along with my data. Of course, I might not want to overwhelm the current data information with my prior belief or my prior knowledge, but I couldn't, I could integrate it. And for many years, the challenge for Bayesian statisticians was this prior distribution, because there was this idea that you're injecting subjectivity in your analysis. And I remember when I started graduate school, every time you give a talk on a Bayesian method, you had to justify and defend your prior and say, I've tried to make it as less informative as possible. So it's just used for computational purposes and not so much uh, to inject my prior belief. And now it's less of a challenge. Actually, now there's even work that we do where we say we have prior knowledge, we have external knowledge, and we want to bring it into the analysis because the data is so huge, there's just not enough sample size, for instance, to exploit the wells of information unless we bring in some established knowledge. That was a challenge in the early years of Bayesian statistics. The other challenge was the computational part of it. And prior to the 90s, Bayesian statistics existed for, uh, you know, since the Reverend Bayes who developed that formula, but it was really an exercise where you would have your prior and you would calculate your posterior, but it was not really used in applications. And the introduction of uh, sampling techniques from statistical physics like Monte Carlo, uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo algorithms and also advances in computation made it possible to really have real life problems where you would need to do a lot of computation, which should not be, could not be done with a calculator, but now you could do them with computers. So that also made Bayesian statistics very popular. This is not to say that classical statistics is not important. It's still very important. And even as a Bayesian, when we develop a method, we compare it to frequentist methods. And often frequentist methods actually have a Bayesian interpretation to them. And now we're actually at a point when people develop frequentist methods, often they try to give the Bayesian justification for it. And so that separation between the two schools of statistical thinking, I think are now coming closer. Well, I'm older than you are, obviously, but my memory of going to the American Statistical Association meetings at a certain point in time, there was shouting in the audience <laughs> between Bayesians and non-Bayesians. 
I even know of a stat department where there was a physical fight. So our audience should know that this was a hard-fought intellectual battle. And it seems like you're in the middle of another revolution because of their, your applications, and that is with the high-dimensional data you're using, there are techniques emerging out of computer science or data science, whatever that is. And another crisis for the field is what's the difference between data science and statistics? And I'd be interested in your thoughts about the techniques that are arising in data science. And if you had to predict, you know, what will we be doing in, in real applications 10, 15 years from now? On that yes. score. When this question arrived and data science became a discipline, and I was one of the many statisticians, and I wanted them, I felt like this is just statistics with all this hype about. We've been doing this, we've been analyzing data. But I think now, from the statistical side, we also see the computational challenges that are database development, the, the storing of the data. So the part that's less statistics where data science has to do a lot of it, not just the statistical part. But there are areas like, for instance, I teach a course in data science, an undergraduate course, and uh, statistical learning and data science is what the course is called. And students like the word machine learning, and I say statistical learning, <laughs> we're playing with the words, but many of the methods that are called machine learning uh, have actually been developed in statistics. And people do feature selections. There are algorithmic techniques that have been developed, but also many of the methods that really have a theoretical justification behind them have been developed by statisticians. So when you look at penalized methods, things like random forests, we can argue, is it a statistical method or a machine learning method? But So there are methods that have been developed in statistics and have crossed over and are widely used by computer scientists or people who, you know, machine learning or data science in general. Uh, so I think even in the statistics community, now we've come to terms to saying, okay, there are important statistical concepts that have been picked up by other fields. Data scientists use box plots and histograms, like these are plots that were developed in uh, statistics initially. Exploratory data analysis, Tuki developed that, and they've been going on in statistics since the 60s. It was really an area. And now when you see the data science people talking about data visualization, and you're like, but you're just doing a scatter plot, you just colored it differently. But there is something to gain into that because how to make your visualization more attractive and get the message across is an important topic, uh, is an important concept. So all this to say is as a statistician, my initial thinking in this area was to say, well, you're calling it machine learning or data science, but it's really statistics. But over the years I have evolved and said, there is actually contribution from different fields and we're all contributing. And if we collaborate, we're gonna get probably a lot more out of it. And where is it gonna go? I think it's a very exciting area because data is everywhere and data is more cheaply collected. And uh, the bottleneck right now is how to really exploit that wealth of information. And also there's a lot of noise. Uh, so how to really extract the signal from the noise and not just get overwhelmed by the noise or see some patterns that are not really important and build a whole concept or theory around it. And this is where also not just statistics or applied math or computer science, but also the subject matters are quite important because by itself, whether it's statistics or computer science, they're just tools. And in order for them to be applicable and deliver what is hoped, uh, we need the subject matter knowledge, whether it's public policy, whether it's biomedical sciences, that knowledge is really important. 
I have a, a question related to that. Uh, statistics, like uh, a lot of other fields, I think, are ubiquitously valuable, as you've just said, across different disciplines. But that makes the research product of statisticians, some statisticians, especially applied statisticians, distinctive in that they're heavily collaborative. They may publish in a lot of different journals. Some of them are not statistics journals, but rather fields of application. And they are a member of the team that are critical for the analytic part or the research design part, but may not be leading a team. So I know you do a lot of evaluation of other statisticians. How do you make judgments across the field of the impact of an individual's work, given that there's a lot of group work going on? So as a statistician, I think it's important to have methodologic research area where you're really contributing to extending statistical methods and really making contribution to that community. But there's going to be a lot more also that you'll be doing in your applied, you know, the science, uh, the application area. And neither one of these should be devalued. I think they should both be given weight. It's true that in coming up with a methodological question or having your own research agenda is harder. But even in order to do that, as a statistician, it's much easier to get those ideas when you're working with collaborators because say one collaborator comes with a particular type of data or asks you to design a study, help them design a study, you realize that the existing methods don't quite address what they're trying to answer. So maybe you'll help them address or answer that question using existing methods, but in that process, you actually see gaps in what's available. And that's really helpful in pursuing your methodological research. So having the two combinations makes you productive because you get papers in both areas, but also opens up ideas from the application to the methodology. And once you have a methodology, you can say, okay, let me apply it on your data and let's see how it compares to the other the existing methods and how much did my contribution did it really improve anything or does it do the same, but it's just a different approach, which is still an important contribution. And for junior colleagues, it is really challenging. Now there's more openness in general for interdisciplinary projects, but there's still that question, if a statistician is only doing collaborative work in applied non-statistical papers, there'll be the question of, are they just a data analyst and can they develop their own methodological questions? So especially as a tenure line faculty, there's still that need of having a methodological research agenda. So maybe that's a good segue into a very common problem of younger academics, and that is they're completing their PhD and it's all research all the time. It's a wonderful and awful period of life, I think, for all of us. But then if they enter a campus environment as an assistant professor, suddenly they have to juggle teaching and research and service. Thinking back on those days, how did you figure it out for yourself that you could do all three of those things and still keep breathing? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I was going to be able to do it. So in graduate school, as you said, it's exciting because you learn a lot of things. You have the privilege of working on a particular research problem and really focus into that and you do not have the other distractions. And I really appreciated my years in grad school, really took it as a big privilege to be able to do that. But what I was going to do after that, I was like, okay, I need to get my PhD and then what am I going to do? I wasn't really sure how successful I would be. So I didn't take a faculty position right away. So the first position I took 
was called a research assistant professor, but for all practical purposes, he was really a postdoc. But having those two years dedicated to just research and just finishing up your dissertation, my dissertation work, and also thinking of a new methodological work, that was very important for me. So when I took my first academic position, faculty position, I already had you know, several papers. I already also had several projects that were started. But even with that, when I started out and my first position was really in a research uh, institute, so I had very little teaching. It was mostly like one course a year because I was in a biostat department in a medical school. But even there, teaching that one course a year and having the other committee works and having a lot of collaborations, I just felt like it was overwhelming. What was really helpful was those two years where I had a lot of research projects initiated. I could just continue with those. And that sustained me, I would say, for at least the first three years where I really had a hard time knowing how to juggle all the demands of new tenure line faculty. And then things get better because later on, as you teach a new course, you know, first of all, you don't have all the stress of a new faculty member where you feel like you have to have everything covered. And uh, it's also your new first few times developing courses. So you spend an incredible amount of time developing courses. And with years now, when I develop a course, of course, it takes me time, but I also use examples from previous courses and I mix things. So it definitely takes a lot less time as you progress in your career. Same thing with service. At the beginning, you try to network. You also are very scared of making mistakes. And with age and experience, you're like, okay, I'm going to make mistakes anyway. And everyone makes mistakes. So you're less harsh on yourself and that's helpful. But again, I think that came with time. And then with research, initially, you know, we all want to have high standards. But we also have to publish like so sometimes what I tell to junior colleagues is get those papers out, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, that would be a next paper, that would be a follow up paper. And that's also something that you get better at with time because at the beginning you just feel like you're almost done with a paper but then there's this other hole that you see and you just want to feel it at some point you have to say that's it this is good enough for a paper and that gets better with time I think things get better with time I'd say. <laughs> Well, and a big lesson, it sounds like you're communicating is ease up on yourself. And there are a variety of ways to make impact and get things out, disseminate as much as you can. Exactly. This has been delightful. Maybe a good way to end is what's the, the most exciting thing you're doing right now? What do you find yourself thinking about odd moments, even when you're not blasting away on your research? What's the puzzle you're trying to figure out right now? So there are different research projects that I'm still working on and I find very exciting. But what has been taking up quite a bit of my time lately is actually working on a book, it's an edited book titled Handbook of Bayesian Variable Selection. So I'm doing this book with a, a collaborator, a longtime collaborator of mine. So essentially the goal of this handbook is to provide a comprehensive review that traces the history and the development of Bayesian methods in variable selection. So go, going back to earlier approaches where using base factor for variable selection, then starting in the mid nineties when there were spike and slab priors became popular. And then over the last decades, since I'll say the 2008, 2010, where continuous shrinkage priors have been receiving a lot of attention. And it's also a research area that's evolving very fast. As we mentioned, like with big data, with high dimensional data set, there's one of the major questions is to try to say, which, 
what are the signals, extract the signals from the noise, what are the relevant features, whether it's to identify, so for in our applications, it would be what would be good diagnostics to try to identify disease classes or therapeutic targets, so biomarkers to use as therapeutic targets, but variable selection is really an important component of doing high dimensional data. Yes, over the last year, I would say I'm spending a lot of time on this book, so I'm writing some chapters, but I'm also reviewing contributions from other people. And it's been a great learning experience because there were some areas that I was not familiar with. So we have aspects that go into the theoretical aspects of this Bayesian variable selection methods, others that are more methodological and look at different type of models that I don't necessarily run into, like as you know, state-space models is not something I use normally, but in this process, I'm reading papers, the contributions in that area. And also there are chapters that are on computational methods and not necessarily computational methods that I have followed before. So it's been a really great learning experience for myself, but I also hope that this handbook would be useful for in graduate students, young researchers, or not necessarily statisticians, people wanting to use these ideas in their research. You know, it's a wonderful lesson for students, I think, to realize that this career choice allows the thrill of learning your entire life and learning in a way that's probably more enjoyable than sitting in a classroom because you're you're working with collaborators and you're integrating new knowledge into your old knowledge and, and so on. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much for having time me. with us. It was delightful. And I can see just a glimmer of what motivates you in all your work. And thank you for letting us see a bit of that. Thank you very much for this opportunity.